Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vicini. We're presented by The Athletic. I've got a two-part episode scheduled for you today. In the first part, I am joined by Matt Moore from the Action Network from Locked On Nuggets, and we are going to talk about the Denver Nuggets. I feel like every time that I've mentioned the Nuggets uh, so far in this playoff run, it's been in the context of another team. It's been in the context of the Clippers or what they did wrong in the Lakers series, but I want to actually have a conversation about the Nuggets and everything that's going right for Denver in this series. And I thought that Matt would be a perfect person to have on because he's out in Denver and uh, really knows the team exceedingly well. The second part of this episode is an interview with former Marquette guard Marcus Howard. Howard is a two-time All-American who is seen as a potential draftee in the 2020 NBA draft, which is now scheduled for November. Marcus and I kind of dove into some issues like, you know, why isn't he considered a higher-end draft prospect after two straight All-American team births? How does he plan to combat some defensive issues he has? Uh, what it's like whenever an elite-level shooter uh, just gets into a zone and no one can really stop him because... There really isn't anyone over the last few years of college basketball that has gotten into that zone quite as often as Marcus Howard has. So it's a really, really fun interview for about half an hour. But before we get there, I've just got to tell you real quick about The Athletic. Don't miss exclusive in-depth coverage of this unprecedented sports season. Subscribe now and save. Sign up to see for yourself the creativity, reporting, and storytelling that sets The Athletic apart. And if you go to theathletic.com slash game theory, you can receive an all-access subscription for just $1 a month. Sports are back, and you won't want to miss the breaking stories on your favorite team. So if you go to theathletic.com slash game theory, you'll receive an all-access subscription for just $1 a month. We hope to see you there. One other quick note before we get into the podcast. Over the next month, things in terms of the podcast timing could get a little bit tricky for me. My wife and I are moving, uh, and just could end up getting tough in terms of figuring out uh, the right times and uh, places and everything to podcast. So if it gets a bit irregular in terms of it not being Monday and Wednesday or Monday and late Wednesday going into Thursday, don't worry, you're still going to get two podcasts a week. Like that's not going to be a problem. It's just bear with me as uh, my wife and I continue to, uh, you know, kind of move through a few different things here uh, as we uh, kind of pack up our personal life and go somewhere else. So now let's get to Matt Moore and then followed by him, it'll be Marcus Howard. Matt Moore is in the building. Matt, what's going on, dude? Not much, man. How are you? I'm doing fine. You know, it's a, it's a busy time here. It's stressful. We're, uh, we're getting through it, you know, just, uh, between the playoffs, the draft, doing off season previews, you know, as I kind of said in the intro moving, like it's, it's a bunch, man. We got a, we got a lot going on here. How are things on your end? Good. You know, it's, um, you're in that part of the year where, the playoffs are so intense, especially the first round, and then the intensity of each and every um, 
round each and every game kind of ramps up and so it gets a little bit exhausting but then there's also that panic of like oh man like we got however many finals games however many western or, or conference finals games and that's it like we're gonna be done till probably march like that's like it's gonna be a long time without pro basketball so it's uh it's i'm trying to enjoy as much as possible it's been i think it's been given the circumstances has been a really fun playoffs and i don't i have no idea what the future looks like in terms of the dra- uh, in terms of the draft in terms of free agency in terms of the salary cap and all that stuff so i'm trying to be very much in the moment right now yeah you're handling this better than i am then because i feel like you know most of my job essentially is to live into the future and man I really should just take on your attitude. I should adopt that and just be like, fuck, man, this rules. We have NBA basketball. We've got, what, probably 13 games or so left in this season, something like that. I really just need to enjoy that part of it because the bubble's been a success. Like, it's been, it's gone off without a hitch except for Daniel House. So, like, we're in good shape. Yeah. So far, yeah. I mean, I like, I will maintain my line of like, I haven't done it yet. (laughs) got to get through like you got another three weeks and then after that we can all everyone handshakes all around for everyone and everyone can be very excited i mean we're recording this on wednesday afternoon like you know and and i'll just say like we'll see what the reaction is to the brianna taylor case um i don't know if that's going to cause further complications with the players because i i would if i were a player i would be thinking about not playing um given uh, it's got to be very frustrating given how much the tension they've tried to put on it. And then this decision comes out. So, but through everything, um, the bubble itself has done well and the the level of play has been exceptionally high. And I just, I, I can't give the players enough credit for weathering the mental strain of being in that environment and putting as good of a product as they have on the court. Like it's been a phenomenal, like the basketball itself has been really good. Yeah, dealing with all of the racial injustice that's happening across the country, particularly in this concentrated time of racial injustice that's happening around the country today, particularly, as you mentioned, with the Breonna Taylor decision, uh, it's just kind of disgraceful. And uh, these guys continuing to fight through that, continuing to fight through a pandemic, continuing to just have to be in a bubble where for so long they were away from their families. I mean, the mental strain really is unbelievable and they've done an incredible job. Uh, And the guy who has probably done the best job of weathering that mental strain out of everyone and just powering through is Jamal Murray. Uh, We want to talk about the nuggets here. And the reason that I want to talk about the nuggets, like I said in the intro is that I haven't, talked about the nuggets yet i've talked around the nuggets and i've really tried to give them their due but every time it's at the behest of another team right it's oh but the lakers are doing this oh but the clippers are doing this and then i talk about the nuggets in the context of what those other teams are doing and that's not fair i think to the nuggets i feel like um i i've gone very national NBA podcasty when the Nuggets don't deserve that. I feel like they've just been an incredible team and they deserve a discussion point all their own. The phrase, I listen to a lot of these national podcasts and the phrase, now give the Nuggets credit, but like that, that exact phrase has been used, I think more times in the postseason than ever. It's just been remarkable. Um, you know, and it's like, I don't, for the team locally, 
I'm more of a national guy. It's just that like, I've been really surprised at the conversation because I was fine with, with everyone kind of being like, Oh, okay. Cute regular season team. Yeah. No. Okay. They're very good. Yeah. Okay. Sure. So anyway, back to the serious teams. I understood that up until the Clipper series, but like, they beat the Clippers. Everyone's like the analytics wonks, darling. Like every analytic wonk I know loved the Clippers. Like yep. the big betters had money on the Clippers title futures. Um, the, they all adored what the Clippers looked like because of how good they looked on paper. And so to see Denver beat them and it wasn't like fluke shots at the end and, and crazy game winners. Like they beat them. They just straight up beat them and i get the idea of the collapse and then to go into this lakers series when it was like all right good run but i mean come on and now to see it through three games and it's like they probably should have won game two and they won game three and it's like look even if you don't want to say that they're like that they're really in this series that's fine because i think the lakers are, are really good and have a bunch of matchup advantages but like they're on the level. Like we can treat them as serious. Like we should be treating the the Nuggets as a serious playoff at this point. Um, and there hasn't been enough of that conversation. I don't think nationally. No, I agree with you. I think that. And look, you know, I, I'm at fault on this as well, and I'm trying to rectify that today. But the Nuggets have gotten better from the time that they were in the regular season and from their seeding games bubble play. Their seeding games, like I thought that they were at risk of going out early. And it was in part because a, their defense was abominable and it was because of who they had to put out on the court, right? Uh, they didn't have Gary Harris. Obviously, Will Barton has still not played. Uh, they were dealing with, I believe it's fair to say some COVID stuff. Like I, I think that's all public at this stage, right? They were dealing with COVID issues. Yeah. They were dealing with, I mean, well, okay. The answer is no, it's not public. Um, they never specified what was going on early. They was just, he's not here. And we like, so why isn't he there? And they would say, he's not here. Um, and so it, it is entirely, I will say this for the record. It is entirely possible that the players that half the team missed the beginning of the bubble, uh, for a variety of personal and or physical issues, completely unrelated to COVID. However, in the absence of such information, given that I am constantly asked about the subject i was forced to finally just be like look i assume it's covid like i assume it and so um that's kind of where it's at like there's there is no reason to not think it was covid okay so let's say uh hmm let's say probable uh covid issues maybe or I don't yes. know. Let's say, yeah. let's say unspecified potential covid issues unspecified <laughs> yeah um this team was, no, I didn't love the way they were playing in the seeding games. I thought that they were struggling early on. And then they go down 3-1 to Utah. And Utah was another team that I thought was just frankly not very good in the seeding game. So I was like, okay, this Nuggets team is not real. But over the course of the last 13 games, Denver has been as good as any team that we've seen in the bubble. They have beaten the Clippers. They are toe-to-toe -to -toe right now with the Lakers. I totally agree with you. And... There are a few things that are happening, I think. First and foremost, like Jamal Murray doing his best Stephen Curry impersonation is unbelievable. Uh, did you see this Jamal Murray leap coming in any tangible way? No. So 
you know, Murray is the one guy that there's a handful of, of media members uh, in Denver. Shout out Ryan Blackburn of, of Denver Stiffs that were just completely sold on Jamal. And I've always been like, I don't know. Like, I just, it, when he's good, he's great. And he impressed me a lot this year in the regular season because he wasn't having these big premier nights. So he was going under the radar. But the things that I wanted to see him improve at in terms of passing, and efficiency, his handle, running an offense and defense, he got a lot better at. Like it was just evident a couple months in, you're like, you know, Jamal's just not as much of a liability on defense anymore. Like mm-hmm. he he's not good, but he fights and he works and he's fine. And then um his well, passing funny, in particular, like, like he really started to to when can we talk about the defense real quick? Because like I actually remember thinking he wasn't a disaster his rookie year as a defender. Like he was okay as a mm-hmm. rookie defender. And then the last two years have just been atrocious. Yeah. I think a lot of that was the first year because he was a rookie. Nobody really targeted him because they didn't know him and they didn't think it was important enough to. And then the last two years, when he started to get one more minutes and then two, he was a much bigger part of the offense. It just became apparent like, Oh, you can really hurt them by just going back at Murray. And last year's playoff run, I think really showed that. Um, yeah. and a lot of it just was like, he just wasn't strong enough. And his weight training has been incredible in terms of his core strength is is so improved um, over the last year from that Spurs series where he really struggled with Derek White, if you remember. Yep. He really focused on on getting tougher. And now, like, this is one of the things in the Utah series, in the Game 3, which was the worst playoff loss I have ever seen by any team. Like When you factor in that they should be the favorites in a series and that it was a 1-1 series, that is the worst playoff loss I've ever seen a team team surrender. Um, and in that game, the only person I thought that really was fighting was Murray. And he was still fighting over screens and trying to get to guys, even as they were getting completely like just detonated on. And that, that showed me something. And now I didn't see 50 point games coming down the pipe. Did not see that happening. Um, he's put everything together. And that's a lot of this that people miss is like, yeah, he's a tough shot maker. He's always, he's always worked on tough shots and you need those guys in the playoffs for sure. Um, I underestimated one, how good he's gotten at keeping the play going whenever somebody interrupts his dribble. Like you'll see a lot of times somebody will swipe at the ball and he'll lose it for a second, but he keeps inside the motion. He'll hesitate dribble and then get to the rack off of the, when that player's out of position, having swiped. And then two, the understanding of how to kickstart the offense, how to make reads that are beyond just, okay, I'm gonna run, pick and roll with Jokic and pass it to Jokic if he's open they've made he's made more complex reads and all of that stuff has really added up to to make him into uh the superstar he has undeniably been during the playoffs whether that's who he is going forward or not yeah and you bring up the playmaking and i think that's a really great uh undeniable point uh he had 12 assists in game three and i think that that was probably the best singular game I've ever seen from him. I mean, I went back before the podcast and looked to see if that was a career high in assists. He had a game, uh, I believe last year where he had 15 assists in a game. Other than that, that is that 12 assist game was his career high. And, you know, frankly, let's just be real about it. Some game in mid January against Dallas is not nearly as impressive as doing it in game three when your team is down 2-0 in the playoffs against an elite level defense like the Lakers. That was the best I've seen him uh, as a distributor and as a reader of what the second and third level of the defenses are doing and are presenting to him. 
I've seen just period from him. Uh, he, he is growing before our eyes every single night, showing different little things that I, I like. I thought Jamal was really good. He has a chance to like very drastically over exceed his contract now. And that was a question coming into the season. Was this contract going to be a disaster? And frankly, entering the seeding games, it kind of looked like he might not live up to this contract. Uh, based off of what we've seen throughout the regular season, because while he showed some real improvement in terms of the factors that you mentioned, the overall numbers stayed pretty stagnant from year three to year four. So the fact that he has continued to show this growth, it just totally transforms what Denver's ceiling is now, I think. Yeah, and I will say this. Um, a lot of the things that people miss in the regular season with Denver was – and. I, I tried to, to get this out there. They play to the level of their competition. So if they face the Hawks on a Monday at home, <laughs> they screwed around and would get beat by Trey Young if he got hot. Like they would literally just give teams like 15 point leads and then a lot of times come back on him unless they had like a Trey Young who would just like go hot in the fourth quarter and they couldn't catch up. But then they would also have games like, uh, they went to overtime versus the Lakers right before the All-Star break and, they beat the Clippers. Now, Paul George wasn't with them at that point, but they did beat the Clippers in the first matchup. And then, like, they they beat Utah twice in a week. And they had all these these games where it was like, they are winning these games. Like, they are winning versus the, the really good teams in the league. They've shown this time and time again. And they're, whenever they were asked about their struggles in the regular season, and Jamal included, like, they really made a point. Um, basically like we're trying to pace ourselves. We know how long the season is. I don't think they knew it was going to be this long, uh, but they knew how long the season was going to be. Like Malone came into the season and said, we're not, he said that the message to his players and their, their team dinner was we're not playing an 82 game season. We're playing a 100 game season. Now they didn't even play 82 games because of the pandemic, but the focus was, Hey, you got to pace yourself. The problem is the players took that too much <laughs> and they started, they just paced themselves throughout the regular season. And they kept saying like, don't worry when playoff time comes, we know what we're capable of. And we were all like, do you do you? Because like you barely got past the Spurs and you lost to the Blazers and that team wasn't great. So like this is, you're, you're, you're really putting the cart before the horse here. And then we get into the playoffs and they have the first three games in which they're absolutely horrible. Um, and then a couple of things happen. A couple of things happen before game four. Um, and it, it just completely turns it around. And with Murray, I think it's undeniable that he's a 16 game player. Like he is a guy that he, these moments he is made for. Like he, he is here. The whole bill for this thing definitely applies to Murray. Like he likes it when the, when the stakes are high, when, the tension is real when it's a big game environment. I think he likes it because of the stage and Jokic likes it because of the level of basketball. <laughs> because it's such a good level of basketball and everyone is so focused. And that combination, I think, is what makes them great in the playoffs. Yeah, and we should talk about Nikola, who has quickly become basically a top three or four clutch player in the entire NBA over the course of this playoffs and over the course of last year as well. Uh, I've given the numbers in terms of his performance in elimination games over the last two years. It's something like they've played eight elimination games. He's averaged 
27 and a half points, 13 rebounds and like six and a half assists in those games. Like it's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Yeah. He's completely unbelievable in those moments. And, uh, even in games where they aren't in the middle of those moments, uh, like last night where I guess you could say it was essentially an elimination game. If you go down three Oh against the Lakers, you're fucked. Right. So Jokic goes out and shoots maybe like the shot of the entire playoffs in terms of degree of difficulty, not in terms of importance, like that shot that he made over Anthony Davis uh, that he created on his own, where it was a pivot pump fake pivot backwards, uh, like floats back onto his off foot, step back, fade away, like 19 footer over Anthony Davis's pterodactyl arms. Like, how, how do you even think to shoot that shot, I guess? Like, how do you even think to practice that shot? Uh, he, he just thinks his way through basketball in such a different way. The elbow sambo, the elbow post-up sambor shuffle is the succinct description of that one. Um, it's funny. We were, we were in the locker room one time earlier this season, and TJ McBride, who's a really good reporter that covers the Nuggets for Mile High Sports. Shout out, like, TJ. Was like, I want to... He's like, I want to ask Jokic, like, how much, like, he dissected this, like, how he thought through this play. And I was like, he's not going to give you a good answer. And he's like, why not? And I was like, because he doesn't think of basketball like that. Like, he doesn't read the scouting report. He's not going into the game with a game plan. That's for the coaches to decide. I was like, he's a bird. Like, he's just a bird because birds are all instinct. And that's how they operate. And you know how birds do random things that you're like, what is that bird doing? And they're so funny and weird. That's Jokic because he's operating entirely on instinct. And it's not that he's a hyper-athletic player. He has incredible feel for the game. And he does solve guys in terms of of seeing what the, the teams give him. Like, this is a problem for the Lakers in the series they let him hang around and now he's adapted faster than I thought he would. I thought it would take him three games to adapt and he started adapting at the second half of game two and all of game three. And that's a problem for them. Um, it's not that he's a dumb basketball player. It's the opposite. He's exceptionally smart because his instincts are so incredible. He sees the game in like perfect 3d vision. It's like he, it's like he has stopped time and he sees absolutely everything going on. Um, and that kind of ability to sew things. And then you combine that with on that shot, his body control for a guy that looks as awkward yep. as he does combined with his, I, I struggle to think of players that have had more touch that I have ever seen. Like no shot, like is clanks off the rim. They either go in or they gently kind of bounce around and nope, okay, it didn't go in. There are no like ugly back iron clankers from him. It's just he is such natural touch that it makes those like that shot was impossible. And yet I've seen it so often. It's It wasn't a lucky shot. I know he can hit that because I've seen him do it 50 times a year. <sighs> I'm so glad that you mentioned that it's just like off of instinct because I really think that he is one of like the smartest basketball players I've ever seen. And like, that's a short list. It's like LeBron, it's Draymond Green, like Jokic is up there. Uh, I'm trying to think of like guys in the nineties and guys in the early two thousands that like really stood out. But like among guys that are playing in the NBA right now, he is certainly in the top five, if not number one, in terms of just 
knowing where to be and knowing how to get that little bit of separation and knowing exactly where his teammates are at all times on the court and knowing exactly how to read that help defender on the weak side. And just it's every, he combines every single little facet of basketball and I'm facet. Like I would love to like go to Serbia and just learn about how he developed those instincts because they aren't normal. They're, they're really just inhuman to be honest. Yeah, uh, sadly for you, that will never happen because they will literally bar the doors and keep you out because uh, his big thing has been like there are so many reporters that have said like, we want to go to visit you in Serbia and like do the whole feature on you and it'll be great and and you can share your home. And he's like, nope, doesn't want anybody there. Like Malone and teammates are the only people and front office are the only people that go to Sambor. Like they, nobody else gets to go. Um, and this is a, this is what's funny about it is like, I think he works on certain stuff in the in the summer, but I think he works on most of his stuff during the season. This is why he's the <laughs> only player he's the only player that I've ever seen that gets in shape during the season the way that he does. Like the older guys will play themselves into shape, but not the way that Jokic does. Like it's oh. it's very clearly like it's it's intense. And to be and to be fair, like he took it very seriously after the first couple of months where it was apparent it was a problem. Like Yeah, that's he, that's what I was gonna say. Like if you remember the start of the season, mm-hmm. it was like he was out of shape early yeah. in the season. Well, and there's a couple of things going on with that. There was a lot of things going on with that, but but the other part of that equation, it was funny because like he took it seriously enough that it got to him. Um he's he very quietly started lifting after games. That was what he started doing was he would go through the whole game and then he would go do like a very serious strength training workout. Um, and the results were transparent. Like, and he was asking, he was asking, he was doing that on the road too. Like he would track down wherever the strength and training room was in the facilities and go do it. And if they didn't have one, he would find somewhere nearby and go do it while they were on the road. And so he played himself into shape, but yeah, I think with him, there is hilarious. (laughs) like just just our elite athletes Um, in how they're able to like do this stuff it's such a high level it's incredible to me well and what's crazy too i'll I'll say this is everyone you know talks about like Jokic like gas he looks so tired and the lakers were the ones grabbing their shorts last night and I, i don't question Jokic's endurance anymore because after game three last year in the Portland series, he played 60 minutes. I missed that game. I I didn't, I didn't cover that one in Portland. I went out for game four and then they lose this four overtime heartbreaker where a bunch of things went wrong. And I was like, they're going to be exhausted and play like garbage. I don't even know why I'm here. This is going to be a blowout. And instead Jokic dominated game four and just went out there and played like 45 and dominated and got them and got them the win to get back to Denver two two. And it's just like, after that point, I've had a lot of confidence that Jokic would at least that endurance was not something we were going to have to worry about. And he, and the clutch stuff is a big part of that is he has burst at the end of games and he just keeps chugging at you. Um, and being able to, he is the only player, Sam, I can remember outside of Elijah one that was a big man that you could give the, that got the ball in clutch time that you can trust with the ball when the clock's winding down. Like we just don't see that. We haven't seen that in years. Like, like the Lakers didn't do that with Shaq. The Magic didn't do that with Shaq. Like, like Tim Duncan know, the Magic didn't really do that. It was Janelle no. Parker. Yeah, and with and sure Murray is clutch as all get out. Everything he shoots is a dagger. 
but Jokic can also hit those big shots too. Like he's just, he's very much made for those moments. His game is, is he's able to score even in those situations. Um, it's really crazy because the debate has been about like, who's the best big man in the NBA and Embiid gets a lot of the conversation in terms of the real big men beyond Anthony Davis. It's like the Embiid versus Jokic. And it's just like Embiid can't handle a double and Jokic tears him apart. Like right. tear, tears him apart. Um, and yeah, the, I, the skill is so big there. I used to be like firmly in the Embiid camp because of the defensive difference. But it I don't even think it's close now. Like I, I, you can just do so many different things with Jokic in terms of the way that you attack a defense that like with Joel, he's a battering ram and yeah, he can get to the line most of the time whenever he wants and he can face up and pump fake and drive and people still fall for that bullshit pump fake every single time. But like, it's just different. It, you create so many more like the average Embiid shot is, yeah, he's going to be able to get to the shot every time, but it's probably a 40% shot right? Or a 45% shot with Jokic. I mean, I would venture that the average point per possession is like 1.1 whenever you give him the ball in those situations and tell him just, Hey, short roll into the 18 foot range. Jamal will get you the ball and then either take that floater, make a cross corner kick out, let the defense collapse onto you and just figure it out. Right? Like it, the level that he is ahead of Embiid offensively is just so drastic at this stage that it, I don't even think it's close. Like I really don't anymore. Yeah. And I think a lot of it, like I was just so frustrated with Embiid this year. Like yeah. I had a, I had an MVP future on him and he just came back with the same nonsense, came back, not in great shape. Didn't play particularly hard. Yapped a lot. Didn't learn how to handle a double. Um, still like, he was sixth in mid-range shots, and it's crazy just because when Jokic shoots mid-range shots, I'm like, that's a good shot. When Embiid does it, I'm like, what are you doing? Like, why? Why are you doing this? Every Jokic shot that he takes in terms of the three-pointers, almost all of them are quality shots out of pick and pops. He's catching. He, it's a it's a catch-and-shoot situation in the flow of the offense. Like, And Jokic has such a great feel for for the the offense he just has a feel for what needs to happen whether it's cutters or um yep. you know basic pick and roll the floater he just has incredible feel and uh, it's a shame because i don't feel like Embiid has great feel. like i very rarely noticed with shots from him where i'm like that was a great shot at that time like yep. that was the right shot for him to take then versus with Jokic, i feel like that's the case eight out of ten times if not higher yeah i'd be fascinated to see if they do hire Mike D'Antoni or if they hire like an elite level offensive coach, uh, how much that can change, how much of that is adjustable and fixable, or if it really is just who he is at this stage. Like, I think there's probably a pretty real case that it's just who he is. Right. Yeah. Um, but we'll see. But speaking of cutters and guys that Jokic hits, the last thing I want to talk about with Denver is just like the level of play they've gotten from their supporting cast, particularly Jeremy Grant. Uh, I think, that you can make a case that very few players have made themselves as much money in these playoffs as Jeremy Grant has. Uh, he's just been exceptional uh, dealing with tough defensive assignments uh, with the occasional offensive outburst, but like they don't really even need that from him necessarily all the time. Uh, obviously last night he drops 26 points and looks fantastic, but between Grant and what they get from Millsap defensively in terms of communication and the occasional offensive outburst from Michael Porter and Monte Morris's 
typically steady play. He's been somewhat up and down, I would say, in the playoffs, but he's typically pretty steady in terms of making decisions, at least while he's out there. The occasional stuff that you see from P.J. Dozier and Torrey Craig, like their supporting cast has raised their game and given them the requisite athleticism that they need around Nikola Jokic and Jeremy Grant or around Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray, I'm sorry, to the point where, you know, Gary Harris hasn't been very good in this series and they're still getting by. Yeah. And that's a lot of this is also the evolution of the Nuggets. Like they're evolving towards a place of, of length and athleticism. I think that the front office realized like we believe in, in Jamal Murray and what he can do. And we know what Joker can do. They maxed both of those guys. And then part of it was by design and part of it was by accident. So I think they liked the idea of what they could do with more length and athleticism. Like Grant came available when Paul George bailed and they were immediately on the phone. And that was like, yeah. the, the front office has never been as jubilant as they were when they got Jeremy Grant. Like that was the most jubilant that front office has been because they knew what he was going to unlock. MPJ fell to him. And so they were just like, they took the risk on him and they really believe in him. But this is the, I mean, the, the four of the five next year are going to be Murray, Jokic, Grant, and Porter in the starting unit. And that's just a, like those two guys having range, athleticism, and size and length is just a really big deal. Grant's big weakness is rebounding. Porter's a phenomenal rebounder. Yep. Um, Grant's big upside is defense that covers for some of what MPJ tends to be on the defensive end. So like they complement each other really well. Um, I was thinking about in the series, like this is what, you know, I'm not getting too carried away. Like if you ask me like, what are the chances that the Lakers advance here? I'm still at like 70% before game three, I was at probably 80%. And I was expecting the nuggets to win game three. Like this is what I'm trying to explain is like, I thought the Nuggets would win game three, but I still put the Lakers' chances at 80. And the way that this has gone down, I'm starting to get a little nervous for the Lakers, just a little bit. Because if you look at it, like, okay, who can you trust in this series to create offense, which is becoming a lot more of what this is about? Like, the Lakers' defense is great. The Nuggets' defense is underrated. Um, the Lakers' defense is better. Um, the Nuggets' defense has been good enough in two games. So, like, who do you trust? And it's like, you trust LeBron. And you trust Jokic and you trust Murray. You trust, I trust Davis under certain qualifiers, which I think that he'll get to. I don't think that they'll, they can take enough away um, to keep him from being effective. So after that, like, who do you trust? Like, do you trust Rajon Rondo to carry you offensively? Do you trust Kyle Kuzma? Like, I have a little, I have trust that one of Jeremy Grant, Michael Porter Jr., Gary Harris, Monte Morris will step up. I have I have some trust in the collective of the of the Nuggets a little more than I have of the Lakers in large part because the Nuggets players are all part of they're used to being part of a whole offense that moves and shifts and has to create a little bit on their own off of Jokic and Murray and they have Jokic who's such a facilitator versus like LeBron's just running the same thing he always does which is you know they're going to run some variation of pick and roll and LeBron's going to whip past the shooters, except that Danny Green has been frozen the whole playoffs, and he's yep. icy hot, so that comes and goes. I don't trust Kuzma. I don't trust Alex Caruso to, to hit threes. Um, I don't trust Rondo to shoot. So it's like, again, I think that LeBron and AD is probably enough combined with a defensive identity to get them through the series, along with just the lobs that they should go way more to. 
But I am getting a little curious here because the Nuggets have more options on the table than I think the Lakers do. Yeah, the big thing that the Lakers need, like KCP is quickly turned into probably the third most important Laker, which is scary because he's actually shooting well and like has been very consistent shooting throughout the playoffs. I think he's at like 44% from three in the playoffs. Uh, he's making those open threes that LeBron creates for him. And I think that that's enormous and he's a pretty good defender as well. Uh, Danny Green is also a pretty good defender and Danny's always going to be out there. So you can count on Anthony Davis, LeBron James, Danny Green and KCP, I think to be out there. Rondo has been useful, but like <laughs> you give many... away quite a bit with Rondo on the defensive end, man. Well, and, and, well, and, well, he was great in that fourth quarter, but a lot of it is Rondo's great in stints. Like right. he's great for these little spurts, but then you play and the same thing with Dwight, you play him for five minutes and they it's can't great. play Dwight anymore. I don't think like well, the whole see, this I think that when Dwight's on the court, he gets like they just piss the Nuggets off and they make them go into overdrive. So this is what's been really interesting. The analysis outside of the, the Nuggets, uh, outside of Denver, before the series started was, well, yeah, you know, they'll throw different things at him. But like, look, eventually the Lakers are going to go to Davis at the five and then you're doomed. The Lakers, are the Nuggets aren't going to be able to do anything. And internally, like the ones that cover the team don't feel that way. They're very right. much like. I, I think we'd be okay. I think the Nuggets would be okay right. with the uh, with, with the small ball because Davis doesn't like being very physical. Like he's just not very strong because all of his limbs are elongated. Well, and, and he, the the other thing is that whenever you put Davis on Nikola Jokic, you take him away from defending the backside of actions. Exactly. And I think that that's the big thing for the right. Lakers. They need Anthony Davis on that backside because right. a lot of the time they're going to try and involve LeBron and Anthony Davis in that primary pick and roll action and take away one of those potentially elite help side defenders. And uh, meanwhile, like the internally, there was a lot of concern about the double, the double bigs. It was like, oh man, they're just going to lob and dunk on him. Like JaVale and Dwight are both going to have huge series and, and they're just going to dunk on, on Nicola constantly. But Nicola and the, the help defenders have largely they're adapting slowly. Maybe the Lakers can turn that tide, but you know, JaVale doesn't start in the second half and Dwight, you mentioned seems unplayable. And so the question is like, if you can't play the, if you can't play the bigs and the nuggets would rather you play small, like that, that to me is like a significant kind of twist on things. Right. Um, what's been interesting is I looked at the lineups and the, that small ball lineup with Davis at five or Morris, depending on how you would classify it. It, was a, po a huge positive in game one. It was a positive in game two, but a negative in the second half when the Nuggets made their run. And it was a positive in game three, but only because of that stretch where they started blitzing the ball handler in the comeback because that was their last gasp. If you take that out, the numbers overall reflect like this is diminishing returns, I think, for the Lakers. So I think there are ways to counter it. All you need is one guy to get hot from three. But I do think that it's interesting to see kind of like the ideas of, of what we have for this series, both internally and externally, and how they're evolving as, as we get through this Western Conference Finals. Well, and I guess I should like clarify on Dwight too, because if Dwight is going to like go out there and try and goon it up and talk about himself in the third person is, is like Batman or whatever Sam Amick wrote, uh, I don't blame Sam for this either. It's totally on Dwight. Um, 
that's just pissing Denver off. Like you're, you're poking the bear and the last thing you want to do is poke the big six foot 11 Serbian bear who can actually think through things. Like he's not just a bear that tears things apart. He's a bear that like tries to methodically assassinate you while you sleep in the tent. Like this is, this is not a tenable situation for the Lakers. They need Dwight to get back to the guy he was in game one where he was within himself and knew where he, you know, kind of fell in the hierarchy of this series. It's like, it's like, oh, we love Dwight's energy. Oh, not that much energy, Dwight. That not that much energy, Dwight. We don't need exactly that much energy. Like he's if he just plays, he can be really effective because um I'm confused. I gotta go back and do a deep dive on why it is that they haven't gotten the lob more often. It's been perplexing to me because it's such a weakness for Denver. Um they can crowd the paint all they want, but all their dudes are short and can't jump in terms of the starting unit. Like Grant's got some ups and he's been better about helping weak side. Plumley can do it a little bit, but Plumley will also foul a little bit in those situations. Like I don't understand why they're not throwing way more lobs. Just like dunk over them. Like if you're at half court offense is your problem. And it is like create some easy buckets. You don't need to, it doesn't have to be, you know, tough, don't make things harder on you than you have to because the the nuggets aren't the nuggets are finding cutters the nuggets are finding open looks the nuggets are are getting to the rim like make things easier for yourself rather than trying to do it the hard way every time so you would put the lakers at like 70 percent to win i think that i'm still right in that range as well Uh, i still would say lakers in like six games probably but i agree with you i think that denver is right on it with them like they are very close. If, and this is this is not a this is not a walkover for the Lakers. This is gonna be a tight series where they're gonna have to win multiple games where it comes down to like the final two minutes. I predicted the Nuggets to win game or the Nugget the the Lakers to win game four, go up three one, Nuggets win game five, and the Lakers barely win game six. But I will say this, like, if they get it to a game six I would be very nervous if I was a Lakers fan for a number of reasons. One, because of what the, the Nuggets have already shown in these playoffs. Um, two, it's been re- the the notions of the, these teams and how they're discussed is always weird to me because it's like the unproven, young, crazy, don't know what they're doing Nuggets versus the playoff tested Lakers. And I'm like, Anthony Davis has been out of the first round once because he beat Portland, who's not exactly a playoff juggernaut. Marquise Morris hasn't been there. Contavious Caldwell-Pope hasn't been there. Um, Alex Caruso hasn't been there. Kyle Kuzma hasn't been there. Rajon Rondo hasn't been there in some time. Dwight Howard is not the same Dwight Howard that was making the playoffs regularly. Like, you're just talking about LeBron. Like, you're only talking about LeBron here versus the Nuggets who have... Like, think about this. Like, four playoff series under their belt, five after the series... How many does Gordon Hayward have in his career? How many does Gordon? He had the have one with career? Utah, and then he has he has one with Utah, and then he had uh, three two last year. Been my guess, yeah, three coming into this year. So this would be his fourth essentially since he got knocked out in three. game one of these playoffs. Yeah, this would yeah this would be six. Oh yeah, you're right, fifth because he got he was absent in the second round. So yeah, oh. like. The Nuggets have Jokic and Murray have as many playoff series played and more games than Gordon Hayward. 
Like, that tells you, like, this is a lot of it. The playoffs are so short sample. You, these guys have, have done it enough. If they do not close them out in five, which they can, they're a very good team. I picked them to win the title. I bet them to win the title. If they let them hang, it's going to get dicey. And I have some concerns about how certain members of the Lakers will respond. Let's talk real quick about Billy Donovan getting hired by the Chicago Bulls. A few weeks ago, Seth Partnell and I, we tried to dissect the Billy Donovan idea in Oklahoma City, where you talk to people around the NBA and they're a little bit more hesitant on Billy, but you look at the results this year and you look at the fact that, look, I don't think he has a losing season in the NBA so far, and part of that's his time with the Oklahoma city thunder with Paul George and Russell Westbrook. And like, I get it. I think he's very competent at a lot of different things and it will be an upgrade for the bulls because good God, anything can be an upgrade uh, for the bulls uh, after this past year and a half under Jim Boylan. But like the Billy Donovan discussion, I think is a bit more complicated than would meet the eye. Right. Because he's really good at all of the things that happen off the court in regard to coaching. But you watch him on the court and his rotations. It takes him a while to kind of think through some stuff and adjust through some stuff. And um, the X's and O's aren't incredible. And this isn't just coming from me. This comes from basically everyone I talk to in the league. <laughs> yeah, I think I don't think anybody in the league is like overly impressed the way that they are with Newt Nurse. Um, right. But I also, but I also think the league has a tendency to think that there are the elite guys. Like this happens with the players too. Where there are elite guys, and everyone else is kind of meh. And coaching in general, I think, is a little bit underrated by the league personnel. Um, that's been my experience. And so, yeah, I mean, you, t- you talk to executives. There's a tendency among executives to anytime something small goes wrong. To shit on the other, to shit on the coach. Yeah. Right. Like the, pro, the, the downfalls are always the coach. The successes are always how great is this roster we assembled um, sure. or they assembled. So my thing is I had a lot of concerns about Donovan that first year in OKC because he tried a bunch of different pick and roll coverage and nothing was working. And I was like, the Thunder defense was great every single year under Scott Brooks. You come in and all of a sudden it's like 13th. Like what's going on? But let, but late that year, he was like, okay, we went through everything. This is what we're best at. We're going to do this. And the players were like, great, sounds good. And they turned into a defensive juggernaut that went to 3-1 and one up on the Warriors. And if Chloe Thompson doesn't go supernova, they're probably in the finals. And I think they beat that Cavs team. And they, are, they won a title, and everything changes. Um, to do that in your first season, I think, is, is, is respectable. I think the idea that anybody could come in and coach that team is wrong. I think handling star players requires a lot more um, tact, consideration, and management of ego than anyone ever gives people credit for. It's why I don't think Spolster got enough credit during the, the Heat triad years. Like He managed that team's um, vibe very well. He wasn't in the driver's seat. LeBron and Wade were in the driver's seat. The coach isn't always in the driver's seat, but you By have to way, play your... That defines yeah. this year in Oklahoma City as well. Yeah. Like, but you still, in those situations, if you're not driving, you're acting as navigator and you're yeah. trying to keep, you're trying to make sure that they're on the right road. 
the year after KD leaves, they didn't have time to respond. The roster was a mess. And yes, Russ went completely ballistic. And yes, Russ's triple-double pursuit was a, was a bit absurd in retrospect. Um, but they still made the playoffs with what was not a good roster. Like that was just, it was an incomplete, not a good roster. They get Paul George. Um, the Blazers series, I don't, no, the Utah series, I don't blame on Donovan because large parts of that were that Russ got into his own personal vendetta against Ricky Rubio and went all the way in on it. And that cost him. The Blazer series, I blame him a little bit more. I haven't gotten a clear answer on this about... I, it's been suggested to me by people outside of the team that Donovan wanted to double Dame and the players, particularly Ross, were like, no, we can do it. We just play our normal defense and we just do our thing. Um, I don't know who, who like which side of that was. I don't know if it was Donovan that was actually like, no, no, no we're just going to keep our same scheme. You have to do, like you. T- you put two ball. You put two on ball on Dame. That's just what you do. That's what you do, and it's the best thing to slow down the Blazers. Um, but at the same time, Paul George was also significantly hurt in that series. He wasn't the same after the shoulder injury. He got both shoulders repaired, um, and I think the OKC team was was really good. I, Donovan was only really I think out coached by Terry Stotts. Like that's the only one that I can really look at. And with the Bulls, I think that his whole brand of he preaches. I, I, like, I will say before we move to move forward to Chicago, I thought he got out coached this year as well. Really, I do. You think um, you think that, you think D'Antoni got him? I do because I think that where Donovan struggled was a he struggled to adjust to the fact that the four guard lineup with Dort essentially playing like the four and then guarding Harden didn't really do that until game five or six, if I remember correctly. And it only happened because Steven Adams got hurt. Remember, like he didn't do it out of thinking this was a good idea. He kind of stumbled on it. Right. And then number two really struggled to get Chris Paul into mismatch situations. Like I was talking to folks uh, in Houston and they were just like, okay, all he needs to do is just, you know, I forget exactly what the coverage is now, but like there were people that were just like, okay, he struggled to get Chris Paul, the matchups that he needed. Whereas uh, D'Antoni was getting the matchups that he wanted uh, pretty regularly in that series. Yeah. I would say two things. One, I wonder how much the Adams thing has to do with the fact of it's really weird to, when you have a guy that's, that's as core to the franchise as Adams, it's really weird to bench him. Right, but the counter I, to that would be pretty easily to do to bench Gallinari. Yeah. Um and that's fair, but also like if but like Gallo's also like he's a veteran and he's gonna be a free agent and that costs you with the agent and that has repercussions. Like these little things I think go we don't talk about those things as much. Where, sure. Definitely like, true. I think that there are always things that are more complicated in terms of especially with a roster like that. The other thing I would say is just like OKC was not supposed to be anything this year, and he got into a game seven versus Houston, which, and it just, it was a game seven, it was a coin flip, and Houston came out on top because Harden made a defensive play. <laughs> like, right. you know, it wasn't, wasn't to be, and that's fine. Um, and I look, think like he, being, being willing to cede control in the way that he did to Chris yeah. Paul this year, right? Like being willing to cede control to your stars in the way that he did to Russ, the yeah. year that that roster was terrible. Um, that stuff is good. That's not bad. 
Like well, also, as long as the guys respect it and know that you're the coach and that you're going to handle rotations and that yeah. you're going to handle your shit, right? Yeah, and I think the I think the player development too because it's like, look, you know, Lou Dort, a, a large part of his performance is like the OKC roster deserves credit for a, a lot of the guys that have come through there and gotten better. Jeremy Grant being one of them. Like I think their player development yep. staff is very good. So, um, when I look at Chicago, I really like the hire because I think. He he's very big on two things, uh, accountability and support. So it's like he's positive, but he's like, let's hold each other accountable. Like you hold me accountable and I'll hold you accountable and we'll all hold each other accountable. And those are like really good principles for, I think, any team. And I think it's what Zach Levine is needed. Like he needed a coach that was going to be like, hey, stop fucking up on defense. But also you're really great offensively. Like you are amazing offensively. Just give a little bit of shit. They were ninth in defense this year under Boylan, which shows you they can defend. It also just like the fact that they couldn't win was entirely because of Boylan's offense. And I just feel like he's going to develop Kobe white and he's going to develop Zach Levine and Wendell Carter. And I just feel like the team will make sense more under Billy Donovan, even if they're not like running a super complex offense and things are, and those things can be improved with the right assistant. Like those are things that you can do there too. Um, I think you're right that he's not like he's not an X's and O's genius. I also think a lot of the time the X's and O's geniuses have short shelf life because they can't handle the personalities. And Donovan, I think, has done really well at being able to handle personalities in this time in the league. Yeah, Eric's bolstros are few and far between in right. the NBA. Yeah. Uh no, I think it's a really good hire for Chicago. Like, as I bring up these questions and this skepticism. I'm doing it almost to play devil's advocate in a way because Chicago just needed competence, a steady hand and a developmental hand as their coach. And Billy Donovan is going to be able to do that. He's going to be able to at the very least develop his players in a real way. I think that where I was most surprised was that he took this job, not the other way around that Chicago hired him. Like I think it's a, Again, a really good hire for Chicago. I was surprised he didn't wait because it seemed to me like the reason that, you know, there was a parting in Oklahoma City was because they're going to move toward rebuilding at least within the next couple of years, if not this offseason. Uh, I think that it's a pretty real chance that they do that this offseason. But you're entering a rebuilding situation in Chicago where you have the Reinsdorf family, which is not proven to really want to spend to the level that you need to. And we're doing so in a pandemic where, you know, Michael Reinsdorf came out and said yesterday, the checkbook is open, but like, look, I I need to see it before I believe it. Right. And I think that all Chicago fans want to see it before they believe it. Uh, I'm just, I'm surprised that he didn't hold out either this year or next year for a better job than the Bulls, but we also don't know what the numbers are in terms of the contract. Maybe they really just stuck the money out there and said, look, we're giving you four years, we're giving you X number of dollars, and we're saying go, and that was enough for him. Yeah, I mean, I think the money... I also think that this team is a little bit better positioned to go now than it's been kind of perceived. I don't think that they're going to be they're not going to be good, but they're going to be good enough to position themselves to make other moves to get good. If that makes sense, because 
like their over under was 35 and I was hammering the over. I was like, this team is like, it's everything is in line here for them to hit the over on this. Like they're not going to be good, but they're going to be like around 39, 40 wins. It's going to be great. This I is good. I like, them to make the playoffs this year. So yeah. I'm right with yeah. You. Yeah. Great bet. Like the, the value is there, which is why good God, I will fade. If Boylan ever gets another gig ever, I will be fading that team into oblivion because it was entirely. On him, but if you look at it, like, look, Wendell Carter Jr. has been around. He's been injured for a lot of it, but he's been around for a little bit. Um, Levine, I think, is starting to get frustrated that he hasn't made a leap, and that's good because that means, okay, how do I get better? Um, Kobe White, I think, showed enough. I'm still really high on marketing if he can get healthy and get some strength training in him as he gets older. You have a young core. Uh, you have some trade chips. You have guys that can actually you can use to fill in various rosters um and you have a market that's attractive and you have Arturis Karnasovas who's a really good like I think he'll be an excellent GM I think that he'll be no bullshit um the players will be attracted to how much like he's gonna have a hard time wooing people but anybody that's serious about winning is gonna like Arturis Karnasovas and um I think that's a lot of it is if they are undercut, it's going to be because of management and Reinsdorf. And those are legitimate reasons. Like, I'm with you on that. But I also think if we look around the league, the kind of availability is like, I don't know what owners you want to work for at this point. Like, we're running real low on owners that I can feel good about in terms of the ones that are that don't have established guys. Like, Steve Kerr's not going anywhere, right? Like, right. you know, look at the open positions that are available. Like, the Sixers that my thing with the Sixers is more the roster um, and being like, I don't want to, if you mess up with the Sixers, it's on your head. And that's a very difficult situation to balance. So, and Houston, like Fertitta is, I just do, don't trust him. I just don't think yeah. you have any, so. And by it, the way, it, the 76ers front office situation is a mess. Yeah. Like, and so the, the devil, yeah. So the devil, you know, which is Reinsdorf might be a little bit better than the devil. You don't. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a very, very reasonable point. Matt, let's close there. Tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people what's going on uh, in your life. You can check me out on Twitter at HB Basketball. You can find me at the Action Network. Make sure to download our app, especially if you're betting. You can track absolutely everything in there. But also, if you just like to track, if you're out and you're doing stuff on the weekends, but you want to keep up with scores, our app updates the fastest of any app I've seen. It's very low. It's very small size. It's super fast and sleek and streamlined. Our API feed updates faster than the television feed most times. That's how fast our, our feed updates. I've tracked it. So check it out on there. You'll find all my content there. Uh, you can check it out also at theactionnetwork.com. I am an enormous fan of the Action app. I totally can sell that uh, uh, with Matt as well because it is so, so quick. Uh, if you gamble at all, it gives you such great information. It allows you to track your bets. Uh, I have not been gambling as much over the course of the last six months, but man, when I get back, I will be using the Action app. Uh, keep it locked here for a minute. We're going to get through some advertisements, and then on the other side will be Marcus Howard. Hey, I'm Taz Mellis of No Dunks on the Athletic. Do you want to walk into a room with your chest puffed out, your neck long, and your shoulders broad? Of course you do. For me, getting clothes that fit properly can give me the confidence I need to do just that. 
Indochino hooked me up with the gear that fits perfectly. I dreaded getting dressed for my Zoom meetings, but now I change for each one with a big smile on my face. I did a virtual fitting on Indochino's slick website for them to get my measurements. I didn't have to talk to a single human. There are so many options. Here are a few I chose. A long shirt, because I tuck it in. I got a no dunks monogram, and I decided against the shirt pocket. I sincerely did not think that custom fit clothing was this affordable, and all customizations are included in the cost. The website keeps your measurements on file so you never have to re-enter them. The best part, Indochino suits start at just $2.99 with all customizations included. Indochino is a no-brainer if you're getting married. Visit one of the Indochino showrooms across North America. Or book a virtual appointment like I did and shop online at Indochino.com. And right now, you'll get $30 off any purchase of $3.99 or more when you enter code TAS. Not ass, TAS, T-A-S, at checkout. That's Indochino.com, promo code TAS. All right, Marcus Howard is in the building. Marcus Howard, a two-time All-American out of Marquette. Uh, Genuinely one of my favorite basketball players that I have seen play college basketball in, God, it's got to be the last decade at the very least. He averaged 28 points this year. He's a 43% three-point shooter over the course of his career. Uh, Just a ridiculously fun player to watch play basketball. Marcus, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. I can't thank you enough for giving me the time. Uh, I'm really excited uh, to have this talk with you. Let's just kind of jump into the first question that I ask every player that comes on this podcast. I'm going to ask you to describe your game in your own words. Uh, How do you think that you can come in and impact an NBA team? Definitely. Um, you know, I think first and foremost, what I bring to the table is, you know, I'm a great person away from the floor. You know, I think um, character wise, I conduct myself in a very, a very um, good manner. Um, I was raised by an unbelievable family. And I think um, I could bring that to any organization, you know, just a person that comes in and um, can be kind of a light to a franchise and uh, just bring good positive vibes. But um, from a basketball standpoint, you know, I think um what I can do very well is, you know, the way I'm able to play, make, um, score the ball, put on the basket, um, lead. Um, I think just the way I'm able to impact the game on the offense, and, um, I can do it a number of ways off the dribble, off the catch, um, in the pick and roll and being able to create from teammates as well as myself. So I think, um, just the efficiency I have at that and have had at that, um, for the past four years in college, I think that's what separates me from, you know, a lot of players in this draft class is just, um, the fact that, that, you know, I'm able to do a lot of different things uh, on the basketball court, not just one particular. I'm so glad you brought up that word efficiency, because uh, despite the fact that you've scored almost 3000 points in your career, you did so with a 61 true shooting percentage. You know, you're someone that takes over half of your shots from three. A lot of what you do offensively really does translate to the next level with your pull-up shooting ability. Is that something that you look at the way that, you know, you watch a, a Damian Lillard, you watch a Stephen Curry, and you watch uh, a lot of these guys who have morphed into these incredible scoring guards? Uh, is that something that you look at and say, like, you know, I hope that I can be that down the road? 
Definitely. Um, you know, I think the great thing about the game of basketball, it's always evolving. And, you know, those guys you mentioned, Damian Lillard, Steph Curry, those are unbelievable players. Those are generational type players. And, of course, you know, the type of success that they've had or um, aspirations of mine to get to that one day. But I think that's definitely something, and I know that's definitely something that I could do at the next level um, just because of the effort I put in, the work I put in, but also, you know, what I was able to do in college. You know, I think that will definitely translate to this, this um, generation's uh, type of game um, where, you know, a lot of – what the game has become is, you know, beyond the three-point line. And I think uh, with my ability to do that from a number of different spots, a number of different ways in transition, um, in the half, off the dribble, off the catch, um, I think I could translate really well, and that's something I could definitely see um, my game kind of being like. You know, is definitely a guy with um, multifaceted um, within an offense that can play a number of positions in terms of playing off the ball or on the ball. So let's go back to kind of your upbringing uh you grew up in arizona and you had a, an older bass older brother who was a high level basketball player in jordan how did your development from a young age kind of blossom to the point where you were uh, 16 going on 17 years old and you decided to reclassify and enter college early yeah i mean for me personally you know my family is my family gets all the credit in terms of who I am as a as a player. I mean, just because being the youngest of three boys, you know, I just follow what my brothers did. And, you know, having two older brothers that played, one that's still playing, you know, I really just follow their steps. And, you know, the influence they've had on me from the time I picked up a ball has been um, immense. You know, they've been instrumental in the way um, the way I've learned, the way um, I approach the game has come from, you know, my two older brothers and um, just the fact that I'm able to, you know, still compete to this day with them both is um, it's a unique situation. So for me, my development has always come from just being this and having to fight for every inch of any, anything I ever wanted, um, especially on the basketball court, because nothing was ever given to me, especially for my older brother. So um, that mentality stuck with me throughout my time playing. And it's going to be something that gears me um, no matter where I end up. You know, I'm always going to have that mentality. And I get that, you know, from my two older brothers. So you decide to go to Marquette when you are 17 years old. You play basically your entire freshman season at 17 years old. And you scored uh, 13 points a night. You knocked down, I think it was something absurd, like 53, you know, 55% of your three-point shots. Uh, what was that adjustment like going from playing high school basketball uh, up to the Big East level of competition, uh, being as young as you were, I believe that you were the youngest player in college basketball uh, during the 2016-17 season. Yeah, so I mean, it was definitely a big transition for me, especially being as young as I was. Um, but I've been playing high-level basketball my entire life. And, you know, even in high school, I would always play up in age. I would play my own age group. So I had been used to playing against older guys. Um, but being in college, you know, it's definitely a different type of transition just because the speed of the game, the strength of the game um, was different at an all-time high, especially being in the Big East. But um, I definitely took a lot of a lot of hard times early in my career. But um, I think the, con the thing that stayed constant with me was my work ethic. You know, even in times when things weren't going good, what stayed the same and maintained was, you know, how much I worked. No matter if I played a lot, I played a little. Um, I was always in the gym, you know, always trying to get better, always trying to learn. And I look back on that as my freshman year as being, you know, one of the most important years of my career just because um, that was kind of my first real taste of adversity. And, you know, when I faced that adversity, um, you know, I was really dependent on, you know, just kind of getting back to the basics in terms of 
you know, working from the ground up and, you know, looking back on it, it's the most gratifying and satisfying knowing that uh, I was able to overcome a lot of things that um, weren't going my way and it helped me shape me into the player and person I am right now just because I feel like when adversity comes, um, a person's true character shows and you can either overcome that adversity or you can succumb to it. And so, um, yeah, it was tough, but um, I was happy I would, you know, find my way. Find my niche and kind of make myself make myself asserted into the lineup. Was that really the reason that you decided to reclassify? Was it simply just that you wanted the challenge? You wanted the uh, you, you wanted the change, I guess, from playing high school, and uh, you wanted to keep pushing yourself to try and improve at a high rate. Was that just kind of what went into it? Definitely. You know, I felt like you know um, in high school, you know, especially with the kids that I was around, you know, I just felt I was in a different uh, mindset and, you know, I wanted to get to that next level earlier. And, you know, I thought it would be a good opportunity for myself to um, challenge myself, like you said, and that's exactly what it was. It was a challenge for me to be that young and trying to have to um, really get used to a college system. Um, so for me, it was definitely something I look to um, take head on. And that's, you know, how I take every situation is head on. And I try to give it, you know, everything I got. And that's what I did going to Marquette at the time I did because uh, not, not many people were doing that. So for me, I think that was definitely something that helped me in a lot of ways just because I had to figure a lot of things out on my own. Yeah, I feel like you were kind of at the forefront of like reclassifying yeah it's a lot more commonplace now but i feel like you were you probably weren't the first name necessarily but you were definitely at the beginning of that trend i mean would you recommend that for uh you know younger players that are looking to challenge themselves or do you think that it takes you know obviously you're a very mature dude right like anyone that hears you speak and anyone that's done background on you knows that you have that kind of emotional maturity to be able to handle what comes at you but would you recommend reclassifying and kind of challenging yourself in the way that you did to other people yeah i definitely would um like you said i mean it definitely takes a certain type of player to be able to do that and do it successfully you know i i just think about it as you know from a player perspective if you can if you think you can handle it then it's something i would definitely suggest just because learning that that knowledge and being at that level at a younger age it's only going to benefit you uh, if you handle it the right way um if you treat it in a mature fashion i would definitely suggest it but at the same time you know it's definitely has to be something that players doing it they have to be all in you know you can't have one foot in one foot out the big year for you where i felt like you really took a leap from being a really really interesting recruit and really good freshman to being okay holy shit this guy's a star right was that sophomore year what did you do coming into your sophomore year that made you improve to the point where you know you were dropping 20 points a night and shot 40 percent from three on high high volume uh you know how was that year between your freshman and sophomore year and how important was that for your development you know i think with me i was just maturing more you know i was i was 17 going on 18 you know my mindset was just different you know i i gained the confidence that you know i belonged that you know you know i was definitely a player that could continue to improve and definitely make noise across the country and i got that confidence after my freshman year and once i had that you know i just continued to just be relentless in my work ethic you know i was working out three times a day every day in the summer and you know in the summer um is definitely where i think the gains are made as a player is just because the amount of hours you know I would spend in the gym is just um it's det- detrimental to me as a player I mean, everything everyone sees on the court stems from all the work that myself along along with my family do in the offseason 
And, you know, I every year, you know, I feel like I continue to amp it up more and more to the fact that, you know, um, it just became the norm. And, you know, once that confidence kind of synced in after my freshman year, that's when everything just started to come together. Yeah, I think that the first game that I remembered you just like going off, right? And that kind of change happened against Providence, right? I believe mm-hmm. it was in early January of 2018. Yes. And it just felt like every single time that you shot the ball, you weren't going to miss. Like there was just a 0% chance, even if you had three guys draped all over you, that ball was still going in the basket. What's it like for a guy like you who's an already elite level shooter to get into a zone like that where just nobody can contest you basically and it's just over? Honestly, just with a game like that, you know, I think it definitely calls for, you know, just the, the time in the game and you know, I think just with the the run that we were going on and what I was doing as a player, you know, in that situation, um, it's just what the game called for. And, you know, and I got in a rhythm and once I got in that rhythm, I just continued to let it fly. And um, at that point, you know, my coach just kind of let me go. Yeah. And um, <laughs> had the ball in my hands and, you know, he was just letting me make plays. Yeah. You dropped 52 in that game. You had 11 threes. You had three games in your career with 10 or more threes. You had three games of 50 plus points. I believe you probably had four or five other games where you dropped over 40. What game stands out the most to you in terms of your favorite game that you played in college? The one where you just felt like there's nothing these dudes can do to stop me. You know, there are a lot of great games. um, But I think, you know, the game that I think of in terms of, you know, just being on an ultimate kind of role, definitely um, that game against Buffalo my uh, junior year. Um, it was probably games in the non-conference schedule and, um, the first half of the game, you know, I I shot, I was maybe like one for seven, but going in the second half, I had pretty in that second half. And it was almost one of those games where, you know, I just, uh, was in the locker room before going back on the court and, you know, I was telling myself, you know, I'm a lot better than this, you know, I could play a lot better. And, um, even if I didn't shoot, you know, I wasn't going to take myself out of the game by not shooting you know I was going to continue to be aggressive and you know I just played with that aggression the entire second half and um, I was able to you know 40 point half and um, we were able to get a win by about 20 so um, it was just one of those games where you know I kind of was communicating with myself telling myself you know what I needed to do and um, I was just going out and making it happen so um, that was one game that always sticks out just because you know you have a tale of two halves. One half that one half that wasn't necessarily good at all, and then another half where uh, I couldn't seem to miss. So it was just um, it was just one of those games, and yeah, one always sticks out to me when I think back on it. So let's kind of talk about your experiences with the draft process. So over the course of the last three years, essentially, you've had a decision to make every year, right? You could have gone pro after dropping twenty as a sophomore per game. You could have gone pro last year where you were a first-team All-American and you scored 25 a night and shot 40% from three and dominated. And then this year you dropped 28. I mean, what was the decision-making process like for you each of those years in terms of deciding to return to school versus going pro and starting your professional career? You know, for me, my last two years, my junior and senior year, you know, I felt felt in a sense I was ready. But, um, you know, I always – thought, you know, in the back of my mind, I could get, I'd still get a lot better. And, you know, going into my senior year, you know, it was one of the tougher decisions I made just because, you know, it could have gone either way. You know, I could have came back or, you know, I could have gone and 
kind of left things up in the air, not really sure what would have happened. But I think the best thing for me was to continue to grow as a player and to be able to grow at a place like Marquette was really beneficial for me because, you know, I was around a lot of great people. Um, I could grow as a player, as a person, as a student. I can get my degree. Um, So for me, I think, you know, it could have been tough for a lot of people, but it was a pretty easy decision just because of the place I was at, the fact I was still able to make on a college campus while also, you know, continuing to develop my game. What are some of the biggest developments that you feel like you made from your junior to senior year? Where are the places you feel like you improved the most and set yourself up for better long-term success? Yeah, you know, I think for me, it was more so just figuring the game out, making the game easier for myself and my teammates. And, you know, I think as time went on, you know, I continued to develop a better pace at which to play at. my freshman year. I'd even say my sophomore year too, I played way too fast. And, you know, I think my junior and especially my senior year, I played at a much better pace to where I was in control of the game and I was kind of dictating where the defense was to go, not necessarily the other way around. And, um, you know, I think that's something with a lot of film and a lot of skill development that I've, you know, um, attributed to. Also too, you know, I feel um just just as I got older you know my IQ for the game has grown you know I think I've always been a great player in terms of playing off my instincts but you know I've been able to really think the game out really study and learn and develop more of an IQ that I think is going to help me uh big time at the next level before we get into like breaking down like the you know deep parts of your game right and the situations that Marquette put you in that I thought were really great and I thought Wojo did it fantastic job of putting you in positions i mean like you're a two-time all-american you averaged 27 points a game the last two years is there a part of you that like because i'm sure that you know kind of where your draft range is right like you're somewhere in the second round to undrafted range in all likelihood is there like a part of you Mm -hmm. that just gets frustrated by that right like that you feel like man i am i have proven over the last three years that i am better than a lot of the guys in front of me you know, an immature me would say, yeah, it would be frustrating. <laughs> but, you know, I'm to the point in my life where, you know, I can I can only control the things I can. Sure. Um, you know, quite frankly, I mean, I feel it's disrespectful to, you know, me and what I've done in college. But at the same time, um, it's OK, just because at the same time, I've dealt with the same things, especially in high school. You know, people um, doubting me, not really thinking I could translate the next level in high school. They didn't think I could translate to a player that could do anything but shoot in college college you know I became what I was so at the same time you know um, I don't necessarily depend on others to dictate who I am as a player I allow myself and the things that I work on to dictate that Um, so I can't I can't really pay much mind to what people think you know and um, at the end of the day you know I've always been one to to prove wrong but at the same time prove myself right so at the next level it's going to be the same thing you know, I truly believe I'm a first round talent. Um, I think I am. I think what I've done in college has pro- more than proved myself to show the value that I could bring to an organization on and off the court. But, um, you know, when the time comes and I have my opportunity, you know, I'm going to seize the opportunity because at the end of the day, that's what I've always done. Anytime I've been given an opportunity, you know, I've always rose to the occasion and that's what I plan on doing. No matter what somebody has me at or no matter what somebody thinks or where I should be, I'll, I'll dictate, you know, where my destiny will lie just based on know how I perform yeah I think that's the best attitude to have I think that's the attitude you have to have right and I'm sure it's an enormous part of how you know you're someone that is five foot eleven right like you're small you're typically the smallest player on a basketball court and you still dominate at the end of the day right so that's all that matters all that matters is that you can ball right definitely definitely so a couple of situations that I feel like I want to talk to you about in terms of the way that you can find success at the next level one of my favorite 
things that you guys did at Marquette over the last couple of years specifically was you would either grab a rebound or someone like Theo would grab a rebound and they'd outlet it to you. You guys would run just like a double dragon transition to try and get you free immediately. And you'd obviously have the green light to pull whenever. Like, I feel like that's a situation that can be immediately translatable to the next level because teams are comfortable with you going up and chucking threes. Teams are comfortable with these early screening actions for guys that are elite level shooters and pull up shooters. I mean, is that something that you've looked at specifically where you go, yeah, I can make that work at the next level? Um, yeah, so for me, I think that could definitely be a translatable part of my game at the next level just because, you know, that's something I've been used to doing for a number of years. You know, I think with what I'm able to do um, as a player, you know, um, doing a number of ways off the dribble, I think early drags and early transition points are big, especially in the NBA. You know, I think there are a lot of guys that find their offense as early offense. And, you know, if there's space in the open court off of a rebound or off of an outlet pass, you know, it's definitely something I could see myself taking advantage of. So, um, you know, all, all, it really, really, um, all it really matters is, you know, the team that, you know, I end up with really does believe in my abilities and um, trusting me that I can be able to do that for them in their organization. Yeah, and you mentioned the ability to play off ball in the little intro that we did about who you are as a player. And that's really interesting to me as well, because, you know, Marquette at the end of the day, like you did have the ball in your hands an awful lot, but when they played you off ball and pushed you into that situation, you were someone that really knocked down shots off of screens too. You know, you shot 40% this year, uh, according to synergy coming directly off of screen actions. Uh, that off ball ability, I think is really, really important for someone like you especially in today's nba where these bigger wings can often be the guy that's initiating the action and then you know someone like you can play off ball and fly off of a pin down and fly off of a baseline screen and uh you know just relocate kind of off of an offensive rebound and just knock down those shots i mean the ability to play off ball is enormous how comfortable are you playing off the ball consistently right now you know, I'm comfortable with it. You know, the great about um, where I was at Marquette is, you know, I had a number of roles. Um, and, you know, my first two years, you know, I had a great deal of the time I was spending on the corporate off the ball. And, you know, I really got time to develop um, footwork and, you know, being able to catch on the fly, timing the pass, timing how I was going to shoot. Those were a lot of things I worked on. You know, even when the ball is primarily in my hands my junior and senior year, I was still coming off a lot of actions where I was coming off of tight pin downs or coming off of screens and having to catch and shoot. So, I mean, those are areas, you know, I feel comfortable with. And at the next level, you know, I understand and know that I'll be playing with a number of great players that, you know, are ball-dominant players, you know. So, I mean, guys who are, are big stature but can play the one but can also play the two. So, I've seen interchangeable in that aspect, being able to bring um, a variation of ways you know, offensive end, whether it be on the ball or off the ball, I think I can bring that to the table because it was something I was used to doing my first years in college. And then on the defensive end of the floor, I feel like that's the biggest question that people have about you. You know, I'm sure you've been watching the NBA playoffs, right? And you see these situations where teams will try to hunt mismatches in ball screen actions, right? Or in off ball screen, off screen actions. And then yep. they'll have this, uh, guy that gets the switch come up and just grab the ball and try and isolate on the smaller player. How do you feel like you can combat those situations whenever you're put into them at the NBA level? Yeah. So for me, defensively, you know, I feel, um, I feel there always are a lot of questions, you know, especially with my eyes and, 
and everything. But I really, I really think if you really did, dug deep to analytics as well as the film, you know, you would see that each and every year um, I've gotten better and better defensively. And, you know, I think that's just a, an attribute to me really, really learning the that side of the ball. And I think at the next level, you know, I'll be able to take and, and learn a lot of things from um, my teammates and the guys I'm playing with. You know, there are definitely a lot of schemes that you need to learn at the NBA level. And I think just being around, you know, high-level talent like that that have played NBA basketball for a number of years and being able to learn the ins and outs of it, um, I think I'll really be able to benefit from that. So um, I just I, I just see myself continuing to develop in that aspect. And I think, you know, um, you know I'm going to be close to – the, the basketball player that I can be. And I think that's what's exciting for me as a prospect is, you know, I can still get so much better. And I think, um, like, I think it's going to, it's going to be like that for any type of player. So, um, for me, that's definitely something I look forward to being able to, you know, really dive in deeply and kind of learn more about. The big thing that when I've talked to coaches about you that have talked to their players or talked to players that have played you, they've kind of just mentioned to me that they're always surprised by how strong you are by how like solid you are because you weigh, you know, you're listed at something like 180 pounds, right? But the way that you're able to hold your ground and absorb contact is always really impressive to them. How do you think that that has developed over the course of your four years? Because I agree with you. I think that that's the biggest reason why you've been able to show consistent growth as a defender over the course of those four years. For, for me, I think, you know, just the fact that um, I am the size that I am, you know, I don't ever look at that as an excuse. I look at it as, you know, an advantage for me and what I can do on the court. So for me, um, I've always been, you know, in terms of stature, you know, I've always been um, stronger. You know, I've been, I have strong legs and I've, I'm strong in the upper body. So um, I use that to my advantage, you know, whether it's in ball screen situations, whether it's, you know, in attacking the rim. Um, open, you know, just trying to be as physical as I can because, you know, I'm a physical player. I've always been that way, and um, I really like to use my body. Like, I enjoy contact. You know, I like – I mean, I'll, I'm not one who shies away from it. So, for me, um, you know, it's just for me as a player, that's how I've always been, you know, just being able to use my body, throw my body around. I have no problems doing that, and I feel, you know, it definitely play, plays into my benefit when I'm being aggressive and attacking in the way that I do. You have a brother, Jordan, that we've kind of alluded to earlier – that is still playing professional basketball. What have you kind of taken from him in regard to how you go about uh, adjusting to the professional level from the college level? Yeah, you know, for for Jordan, you know, he's always been um, just so even keel in his approach. You know, I think for him, nothing really rattles or phases him. And I think that's a great kind of attribute to have as a player because being a pro, you're going to go through a lot of changes, whether it be positive or negative. Um, but in those changes, you can never be too high and never be too low. And he's always been, you know, kind of the same temperament. And whenever he's playing, you know, he keeps, you know, he keeps himself very composed. And I've always, you know, definitely looked up to him in that aspect because um, no matter what's happening, whether he's playing good, playing bad, um, you know, he's never rattled by anything. And I think that's the approach that you need to have as a professional just because, um, not everything's always going to go your way, but you have to maintain a certain poise um, in everything you do and portray a certain type of strength when you're on the court. All right, Marcus, the final three questions here are questions that I ask every prospect that comes through to the podcast. First, who is the best player that you feel like you played in your four years at Marquette? Wow, that's a tough one because there's so many. 
Um, there are so many, but <laughs> um, the best player I feel I have played against in my four years, I would have to say, I would say Ja Morant for sure. What was so tough about Ja beyond the obvious? <laughs> I mean, beyond the, beyond the obvious, I mean, he's NBA Rookie of the Year for a reason. But I mean, just the way he's able to affect the game. I mean, he's so he's so basketball savvy in terms of you know he always seems to be in the right place at the right time. Um, he makes difficult plays look easy. Um, you know, I really think, especially this year, he's improved the shooting. But when we when I played against him, you know, he was he was doing everything. You know, he was he was. Born, he was passing, you know, his speed, his quickness, his athleticism. I mean, he, he's just, he's a prototypical NBA point guard. And I think, you know, at the college level, he was already at that level. So it was kind of easy for him at the college level. So, I mean, it's no surprise about him doing what he's doing right now. So, I mean, he's definitely one of the best players I've played against for sure. Yeah, God, you guys even had the right defensive strategy for him, right? Like, you were going under on ball screens, trying to stop him from getting into the paint. Yeah, no, I mean, no, no, made yeah, five. Nothing. He made five threes in the first half. His, his team, yeah, his his supporting cast was really good. And, you know, I mean, it was just one of those things where schemes went out, went out the window. When you're in the NCAA tournament, you know, it's really about um, who can execute the best. And they, I just felt, you know, as a team, they, they just, they were ready. So, um, yeah, no, it was definitely, definitely, uh, they were definitely a great team. Yeah, that was that was ridiculous. I remember watching that. Like I I can like vividly remember like him pulling up from 30 feet as you guys like did the right thing going under a ball screen. It was just like, well, we have to let him take this. Right? <laughs> like we have to let him take this 30-footer and you know, he just canned like three of them in a row and it's just like, okay, what can you do about that? There's just nothing nothing you can do against elite talent, right? Throughout the pandemic, I'm sure that you've had some downtime to not necessarily focus on basketball, even though basketball is, of course, your chosen profession. What are some of the things you've been doing uh, in the off time over the course of the last six months that have uh, been afforded here? Yeah, you know, some things I've been doing, you know, I definitely spent a lot of time with my brother, Jordan. Um, I mean, there's not really a time in the day when him, him and I aren't together. So, um, you know, just catching up on on lost time just because I hadn't seen him prior to the pandemic. I hadn't seen him in about uh, 11 to 12 months. So, I mean, this is the longest we've been together in probably five or six years. So me and him, you know, just spending so much time together, which is awesome. And then, um, you know, nothing really, just hanging out. Uh, love playing card games. Um, but you know, for the most part, you know, when I'm not training, you know, it takes up so much of my time that, um, when I'm not training, you know, I'm just relaxing or resting and recovering. So, um, not too much, you know, watching TV, watching the NBA now that it's back. Um, but other than that, you know, kind of just kicking back and trying to be able to recover as best as I can for the next day's, uh, training session. What are some of the TV shows that you've been catching up on throughout this time? Um, I'm big. I've really started to get into like National Geographic. So like one of my favorite shows right now is um, the 70, 72 Most Dangerous Animals and they had to do it regionally. So right now I'm watching 72 Most Dangerous Animals in Latin America. So it's definitely interesting. It definitely keeps me educated just in case if I travel anywhere where I need to stay away from. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you know, I've really got, I started, I've really started to get into, you know, the, the, the nature side and national Ge- geographic side of TV. So um, I've been loving it. You know, it's definitely intriguing to me. I love that. That's an awesome answer. Uh, the final question here is you're going to be getting a professional contract here coming up soon. What is the first thing that you want 
to buy with that first professional contract. You know, some people say they want to put a down payment on a house. Some people want to spend it on something fun. What are you uh, kind of thinking with that first contract? I definitely want to be sure. I mean, before I even get my contract, you know, I want to be sure I'm discussing or talking with financial advisors about some good decisions I can make to make my money last. But um, this is going to sound premature, but something I've always wanted to buy um, is a pool table. So I know it's going to be definitely difficult just because I won't, won't necessarily have a house right away. Um, but down the line, I mean, one of the first things I want to buy is a pool table for sure. Cause I mean, I love playing pool. I love that answer so much. I think it's one of the, like, like I've had people say chains or like a super expensive pair of shoes, right? Like a pool table is something that lasts and it also creates enjoyment, right? Definitely. No, I'm, I'm a simple guy. You know, I don't necessarily need all the flashy stuff right away. Um, you know, I'm into the thing that I truly enjoy and, you know, um, like I love the pool, you know, I mean, that's just like, that's something I've really gotten into over the years. And, um, it's one of those things that, you know, if I'm able to have, you know, a place of my own, that's something I definitely want to have in, in my pad. Well, Marcus, as someone who is just absolutely terrible at pool, uh, <laughs> I, I love that answer. I think it's great. That's been Marcus Howard over at, uh, Marquette. He's going to be entering the 2020 NBA draft here that will be held in November. We hope. This has been the Game Theory Podcast. Keep it locked here for more. Until next time, we'll talk soon. Bye.